Good morning, friends. Good to be with you again. Um, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 44 this morning, and in a moment we'll turn to that passage. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Father God, um, when we open your word, we pray that our hearts would be as open as the pages before us. And as we listen to words, we pray that those words will flow from your heart into our own. And we pray that we would listen with an open spirit. And if we need to be challenged, please help us hear that clearly. If we need to be comforted, God, we pray that you will speak words of comfort and hope through your word. If, Heavenly Father, we need to be corrected, we pray that we would honestly lay our lives before you. And we ask simply that these words written so long ago may have new life breathed into them once more by your Holy Spirit so that we, uh, when all is said and done, can say only you, God, only you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, a sermon in three sentences and then the sermon. Three sentences. Number one, it's not about you. Number two, it's not about me. Number three, it's only about God. And now the sermon. Gutsam Borglin, some of you may know the name, was inspired. The great American sculptor of a hundred years ago was moved to create something noble something majestic, something that could stir the American spirit. He would sculpt faces that were worthy of the American character. He had no small dreams. He would need a block of granite larger than the largest block of granite ever quarried. So he set out for the Wild West looking for a mountain that he could use as his canvas. He was looking larger than anyone had looked before. He wrote about the place he was looking for in these words. Here's the picture of what he had in mind. Let us place there, he says, carved high, as close to heaven as we can, their faces, and then breathe a prayer that these records will endure until the wind and rain alone shall wear them away. So Borglum set off west across the great plains until he came to the place where the prairie turns rugged and the wild west begins, the badlands of South Dakota. And Borglum found the granite he was looking for, the face of a 5,275-foot mountain of granite, the exposed southeast face, provided the surface that would ignite his imagination. Hanging from ropes staked to the top of the mountain, for six and a half years, dynamite blasted away huge chunks of stone. Then air hammers chiseled the finer features. And finally, hand smoothing of surfaces led to four faces carved high, close to heaven. It was finished. And now we know the famous four faces carved on Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. 
Have you been there? Has it stirred your spirit? It has mine. Bear with me a moment and use your imagination and change the picture slightly. Suppose that we're standing at the dedication of the Mount Rushmore. Suppose on the day of dedication, the press releases have all gone out, thousands of people have gathered to watch the great canvas fall away and the faces be exposed. Suppose that Borglum himself is standing on the dignitary stand, that his face is craned upward to see those faces that he has carved. Here the band playing its patriotic number, the national anthem has been sung, a short speech has been given by the governor of the state of South Dakota and a representative of the Department of the Interior. And then all eyes turn toward Gutsam Borglum and imagine he raises his hand and in dead silence drops his hand. The ropes are released. The canvas falls away and imagine there is absolute dead silence. And then someone starts to laugh. And then everyone is laughing. And someone, suppose, says, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen because suppose that on the face of Mount Rushmore, Borglum has sculpted four faces of himself. His left profile, his right profile, a pensive pose and a playful pose. Ridiculous. Who would do such a thing? Laughter, indeed, ripples through the crowd that someone would carve their own image high and close to heaven. Ridiculous. Laughable. I wonder if that's what the people of God were thinking when they heard Isaiah's story in chapter 44 of his prophecy. They listened to Isaiah describe the scene of a people who carved their own images. Isaiah is not looking at faces carved in a mountain of granite. He looks at blocks of wood that have been carved into faces people would recognize. Hand-carved representations of gods to whom God's people will bow down. Here's how he sets the stage. This is how he begins the chapter 44 in these words. This is what God is saying and thinking. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I love that, no other rock. No other rock. I know not one. If you're going to carve the face of God in a mountainside, know that there is only one God whose face, and we have no idea what that face might look like. There's only one God whose face ought to appear high and lifted up, the God who both made and redeems his people, only one face high and close to heaven. 
So Isaiah, having heard God's warning to his people that there is only one God, tells a story. It's a story about a carpenter who's working on a project. Listen to the story as he tells it. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. I think at this point, God's people, if they're not rolling in the aisles, are at least grinning and poking each other in the ribs at the foolishness of a man who would walk into a, store, a forest looking for just the right tree, calculates the height of the tree, looks at the diameter of the trunk, says, that's the tree I need, cuts it down, lops off the branches, chips away all the excess wood, and uses the kindling for a fire, makes himself some bread, warms himself, nothing about that tree goes to waste, and then he begins to satisfy the deeper hunger of his life, and from that trunk he carves his God. And then when he's done, he says, you're my God, save me. And then Isaiah says, no one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, oh, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bowed down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? He tells the story because he saw that God's people are captive to a culture that produces its own gods. A culture that carves gods from blocks of wood or sculpts them from blocks of stone. He forces them to witness the absurdity of that picture, that kind of idolatry, and ask, is that the way you want to worship God? Is that the God you want to worship? And in the background, of course, Isaiah hears the rumbling of Mount Sinai. He can almost see and hear and feel the mountain as it trembles and the smoke as it pours out. And he sees chiseled on the tablets of stone, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above the earth beneath the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Isaiah knew all that. God's people knew all that. And yet, and yet, 
They did make their images, and so do we. And it is no less absurd today than it was 2,600 years ago. I wonder what their images look like. Uh, more than that, I wonder what our images look like. If there's a little edge to our enjoyment of the story, and you know, it is a story that every time I read it, it kind of makes me smile, this silly picture of people making gods out of the leftovers of the wood they cut down. If there's an edge to your enjoyment, it's, it's probably because, like me, you realize the problem hasn't gone away in the years since Isaiah wrote his prophecy. And I, I would guess that if we were to carve our images on the face of Mount Rushmore, those pictures would, not, would, would look a lot like me. Or maybe a lot like you. You get the picture, and you get the point, right? At root, the sin of idolatry is selfishness. It is self-absorption. It is the conviction that life is about me. Whatever I want, whatever I believe, whatever I desire, whatever I think, it is all about me. If you have time this afternoon, I encourage you to Google, uh, get to the internet, and Google Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. He is a Calvin College graduate who converted to Catholicism years ago and has become a Roman Catholic scholar of, of, of the highest order. And in June a year ago, he gave a commencement speech at Franciscan University entitled The Ten Lies of Contemporary Culture. Remember that, Ten Lies of Contemporary Culture. All you gotta do is put it in your browser and it'll pop up. One of those lies, he says, and I'm quoting him, he says, it is the most seductively satanic sentence I have ever heard. So what is this seductively satanic sentence that gives life to one of the ten lies of contemporary culture? He says it was lifted from a 1970 children's television program. Some of us watched this show and had our kids watch it, right? The Electric Company, remember? And the sentence went like this. The most important person in the whole wide world is you. The most important person in the whole wide world is you. An entire generation has been raised with that affirmation. We have invited our children and our grandchildren to carve their own faces on Mount Rushmore. It is an echo from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when the devil says to Eve, Eve, you could be like God. I mean, you can be like God. I can be like God. There's nobody more important in this whole wide world than me. I can do what I want. I can do it when I want. I can do it because I want, not because somebody else wants, because nobody's more important than me. That, that's not laughable. That is so profoundly destructive and evil and untrue that it leads us into dark places we dare not go. 
It is a destructive, insidious idolatry, believing that my God loves what I love. My God hates what I hate. My God thinks what I think. My God talks like I talk. Anne Lamott, whose thinking is so to the point, has written, you can safely assume that you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Isn't that telling? Idolatry leads us to worship gods made like us, thinking, looking, sounding like us. There's a, there's a truth we need to hear this morning. We need to let it sink deep into our souls. We need to hear it from the pulpit, and we need to hear it from the people around us, and we need to hear it from ourselves. It is simply this. It's not about you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something. You know, that'll draw you out of your comfort zone, perhaps. And I'm not asking you to do it with a spirit of judgment or self-righteousness or condemnation, but a simple, honest statement that the people next to you really need to hear. They've heard it from me, but I think they need to hear it from you as well. So you just feel the freedom to turn to somebody next to you and say with a spirit of honesty, it's not about you. It's not about you. Some of us enjoy that way too much. <laughs> and uh, the reason, of course, is that if it's not about you, well then, maybe it's about me. Often when we say that, we are trying to stake our own territory and ask someone to consider our perspective. It's not your face on Mount Rushmore, it's my face. So while you may be uncomfortable saying to the people around you, it's not about you, you should have no hesitation in saying to yourself, it's not about me. And um, you can whisper it, you can say it out loud, but you, could, you need to say it with absolute conviction. If you, if you have the freedom to say to someone else, it's not about you, you need to be able to say it with me. It's not about me. In the fall of 1970, I was a newly ordained pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, 25 years old, preaching at the Beacon Light Christian Reformed Church of Gary, Indiana, about 45 miles down the road. I recall a moment with absolute clarity. A Sunday night, I was preaching a catechism sermon. It hit me like a bolt of heaven that the 30 people in church that night were looking at a 25-year-old like they believed what he was saying, listened to what he was saying, and what he was saying was really important to them. And it shook me to the core of my being. Because at that moment, it was as though God said, DeYoung, it is not about you. It has never been, it will never be. It is not about you. And uh, sadly, since that time, there have been other moments when God has reminded me of the same thing. It is not about you. It is only God we worship. The children of Israel were tempted by a culture that surrounded them to carve their own gods, and Isaiah reminds them, instead of making God in your image, remember that God made you. Look at what he says later on in that same passage. 
Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I made you, God says to his people. Isaiah brings them back to the chapters of the book of Genesis and reminds them of the picture of Almighty God scooping the dust of the earth in his hand, forming a human creature, breathing into that divine life, and man is born. In light of the creation of his people by God, isn't it foolish, Israel, for you to think that you can make a God? Israel remind, uh, Isaiah reminds them, not only has God created you, again in verse 21, he says, you are my servant. God created his people to serve him. Israel's neighbors had it backwards. They created God so that their gods could serve them, save them. Verse 17, from the rest he makes his God his idol, bows down to it and worships, prays to it and says, save me. God makes us so that we might serve him. And idolatry makes gods who we hope can save us. It's 180 degrees wrong. And further, Isaiah says to the people of God, God will not forget you. And he makes that to a people who are in the process of forgetting their God. And the assurance of that promise is provided in, in the reality of forgiveness, a promise made by God that sweeps away the sins of his people like a cool north wind sweeps away the humidity of summer. The assurances of promises provide in the promise of forgiveness. So I'm asking you this morning, people of God, do you remember who God is and who we are? Do we remember who made us? We are no more willed into being than can anyone will themselves into being. We all bear the stamp of singular origin. Every person in this room is handcrafted by Almighty God, the author of life, to be worshipped alone. Who could we bow down to but the one who made you, who made me? And do we remember why we walk this earth? Do we admit that the purpose of life is the service of God? Do we understand that it means caring for the creatures and the creation that is his alone? That God, only God, has a singular purpose for every one of us. Do you know and believe that God made you for the purpose of serving him? Have you figured out what that means in your life? It is as varied as the hundreds of people in this room. A common purpose serving God, but serving him in different ways. Or are you tempted to ask God to serve you? God who has created us with singular origin, who has made us a people with a singular purpose, gives to us a singular promise, I will not forget you. The temptation to cave into idolatry, to forget about God, is laid before the God who said, I won't forget you. And do we 
remember that the right perspective of God's place and purpose in our lives comes from a singular experience. And that experience is through God's only Son, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that there came a day 2,000 years ago that someone walked into a forest and saw just the right tree. Figured it's high enough, it's thick enough, it's exactly what I want. Cut down that tree and formed it and took part of that tree and made an upright and planted it in the earth and took the rest of that tree and made a cross member and put it on top of the upright. And on that tree, fashioned by human hands, hung the son of the living God. He carried the tree to Golgotha, planted it in the earth, was placed on that tree for the sins of God's people. That singular experience is what binds us as a people of God and calls us to be better than those who would say it's about me and it's about you. And if you're in that relationship, then that experience ends as the message of Isaiah ends with a picture of singular celebration. I love this. Look at the last words in the uh, same chapter. Isaiah says, burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees, even the ones you want to cut down and use to make an idol. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. So burst into song, trees. Let the trees with the creation sing the glory of Almighty God. Isaiah has been talking to people like us who cut down things and carve things so that we might make them in our image and worship them. No, says Isaiah. Imagine this. Imagine through driving, that you're driving through the Arboretum this afternoon, the Morton Arboretum. And you've got the radio turned off and the windows are cranked down even though it's a cold day. And you hear trees singing to the glory of God. Imagine a celebration in which the creation and all creatures honor God, God only. Friends, every one of us has Gutsan Borglum moments. We want to find something high, something lifted up, something majestic to stir our spirits, something close to heaven, someone who can save us, someone who is worth worshiping, someone who we would give our lives to. At that moment, there are three phrases you need to remember. Number one, it is not about you. And it is not about me. It is only you, God. Only you. Amen. Father God, would you bring us to a moment, a time, a place, somewhere in today or days to come when the profound truth that it is only you can take root in our spirits more deeply than ever before. And if we need to be humble, then God, please humble us. We pray, do it gently. 
If we need to be affirmed, oh God, then affirm us, but do it honestly so that we, in being affirmed, affirm only you. And help us, God, to understand the wonderful promises that flow out of uh, uh, the profound warning against idolatry, the promise that you made us to serve you. You save us through the blood of your Son, and we are called to celebrate you every moment of our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.